0: Hello everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to wait for a couple more minutes to make sure that everyone who's planning to join has time to join us and uh, then we'll get started. If you can't hear me or see the presentation, go ahead and post something in the chat window, but otherwise we're just going to stay on hold for a little bit longer. And hello again. This is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Excelics. Thank you so much for joining us today. Looks like people are still logging in, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background or information here. Um, In particular, you probably all know Fluke as a test tool provider. But for the last 10 years or so, our passion has increasingly been around making the measurement data that our tools collect more usable for reliability maintenance. So the company of today, Fluke Fluk of today, produces software and sensors and cloud platforms and a lot of other reliability inspection tools. And we were actually just talking with Doug about what the reliability uh, engineer needs today and how whether that's any different from 10 years ago. So you'll find that our best practice webinar series focuses not just on technology, but on the maintenance strategies and solutions. And for that reason, it features speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds, like Doug. So we're really, really pleased to have Doug join our program today. Uh, Many of you know him, he's a noted maintenance and reliability expert and the founder of RCM Blitz. And he'll be presenting on how to focus your efforts on asset lifecycle to improve reliability. So Doug, if you want to advance to the next slide, we'll take a look at your bio here. So, you know, Doug, As a long-time reliability expert, founder of RCM Blitz, and he's provided reliability training and services to numerous companies around the world, large and small, including Fortune 500 companies like Cargill and Kraft, Cooper Tire, DC Water, Whirlpool, Honda, Coors Brewing, Energizer, Corning, and Vista, Newmont Mining. But here's where it gets interesting. Doug has also made key contributions to standard reliability measures for manufacturing reliability training programs for engineers and managers, technicians, and skilled trades. And he's trained so many client RCM facilitators and performed RCM analysis on hundreds of pieces of manufacturing equipment. Prior to all this, Doug worked for 19 years at Eastman Kodak in Rochester, New York. And he's had positions from skilled trade person up to maintenance supervisor and reliability engineer. And he holds a certificate in reliability engineering maintenance from the one and only RIT. Good morning, Doug. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Excellent. So before you get started, I wanted to ask you something. So I see the PF curve presented in a lot of different ways out there. And I'm curious about what influences your particular approach to the curve.
1: Um, My particular approach to the curve is the curve that most people look at is is only just a portion of, of what goes on in the life cycle of an asset and that's Uh, By the time we get to point P, it's often too late. If failures are already occurred point P is the point where we've actually just first detected it So I want people to go back and focus on what caused that Failure to begin with Was it something in design? Was it something in the installation? Was it something in terms of how we operate it? There are many things that could cause uh, a potential failure, so that's really and my passion is to get people to focus on the entire asset life cycle. Thank you so much, Doug.
0: I can see in the question bar we already have some curves about or some questions about what is the PR curve, so this is going to be perfect. I need to tell everyone that today's session is being recorded. So your phone lines are muted, so we can minimize background noise. Uh, And then we're going to save time after the presentation for questions. So you'll see the the question feature over on your toolbar there, and you can submit questions anytime, um, and we'll be reading them, but we're going to wait until the very end, and then I'll read them out loud, and Doug can take his time responding to everything. If you'd like to receive Doug's slides from the presentation, we'll put a survey up at the end, and you can click there to say that you'd like the the slides, and then we'll send them over to you. And the recorded webinar will also be available afterward on excelix.com under our community part. So that's
1: it, Doug, it is over to you. Thank you. All right, so starting out with the basics of the PF curve, uh, this is something that uh, my first exposure to it was reading Stan Nolan and Howard Heap's uh, paper on reliability center maintenance, and their discussion of the PF curve and and actually their illustration of it, which uh, amazingly enough didn't include points P and point F, right? Now they labeled them as potential failure at point C here and functional failure at point D, right? And later on, uh, illustrations that they made in uh, different work they did called this the PF curve. And notice that Point P is further down this curve than what we typically see it, right? That's a potential failure. And that's one of the things that a lot of people aren't aware of is that points P and point F both move or can move up and down on that curve depending on how you or what tools you might be using to detect potential failures or detect failure conditions. And what you determine is functional failure can move point F further up that curve so point p again is for potential failure it's the identifiable physical condition that indicates functional failure is eminent and these are stan nolan and howard heaps words by the way which i always tend to fall back to uh because there is so much information that's put out there about the pf curve and a large percentage of it is incorrect right i'm always going to go back to the people that uh developed this particular uh, part of reliability engineering. Point F, again, is functional failure. That's the inability of an item to uh, meet specified performance standards. So the PF interval is the time it takes to get from point P to point F. So some of the problems with the, the Nolan and Heat PF curve, while well, point P has become the focus of companies who want to improve asset reliability. The problem is point P is too late. The failure mode that caused point P has already occurred. So while it is nice to say, gee, we're using vibration analysis, we detected an increase in vibration, we detected point P. The first question you should be asking yourself is, why did point P occur? What caused it? Point F is functional failure. Again, large percentage of those in the industry believe point F is actually represented total failure, and that's not true. It's functional failure. Your equipment is still running. It cannot perform the desired function you purchased it or expect it to do so in terms of the PF interval think conceptual when it comes to the PF interval uh, lots of people always say well so how do we know what our PF interval is well realistically you'd have to make sure all conditions are identical and then run the item to failure several times to determine what your PF interval is so in most cases today when we talk about the PF interval and how often we should do a, a non-conditioned task It's done by industry standards, which were developed through uh, reliability statistics. Uh, Adding to the confusion, there's dozens of different PF curves. If you look it up uh, in Google or Bing, you'll find all these different images. Uh, Many of them were well-intended, but some of them, realistically, uh, aren't even close to what Nolan and Heath described as the PF curve and the importance of it and what we use it for. So be careful what you're looking at uh, that, that's out there. And again, even copying and using in presentations because I've I've seen some presentations in the last year with represent representations of the PF curve that are just are not accurate. Um, this is one is an example, right? So. Notice where they're showing point P, and that's where they're saying this is where we should be doing condition-based maintenance. Well, that's not true. You should be doing condition-based maintenance right from the time you install an asset or a component, right? Um, And the time-based maintenance comes before that. Well, there are different failure modes that trigger time-based maintenance versus condition-based maintenance. So, and I'm still not sure where the warranty coverage plays into this. So, really, again, it was a very confusing. pf curve in in my view so going back to the basics the curve was developed to help drive good maintenance practices right again think concept with this you either have a useful pf curve or one that's not useful and that's the difference is one of the things that people don't understand is every component at your site fits the pf curve in terms of a model the difference between one component and the next is is the ps cuff interval excuse me useful or not useful for bearings for example we can have months in terms of a pf interval for a proc switch or an io card it's going to be portions of a second that's not a useful pf interval so you can't do any type of maintenance to um mitigate that particular failure so but again understand that point P is not where failure occurs and point F is not totally f- failed, but instead it's functionally failed.
0: All right, I'm gonna take a little bit of a break here. And in a minute, I'm gonna pop a poll up on screen that you guys can all select your answers to. I'm gonna read it out loud first. The question is, what maintenance strategies are you currently employing? Are you mostly, and this is obviously no one's in hundred percent of anything, but where is the majority? Reactive, preventive, predictive, or prescriptive? Do you see the poll up on your screen now? I'll give you a minute and click the one that uh, is closest to where your team spends the majority of its time. And when I think that we're just about there, I'm going to close the poll and then we'll get to see the results. getting closer. Alrighty. I'm going to close her down. And we have got under reactive 48%. Under preventive, we've got 65%. Under predictive, we've got 23%. And under prescriptive, we've got 6%. all i'm gonna hide this poll and give it back over to doug
1: okay so moving forward why is the pf curve important well number one it helps illustrate to people uh to improve fundamental understanding of how maintenance should be performed it tells us that hey we have certain types of components that fit this pf curve and failure modes that fit this pf curve and the illustration helps people understand why on condition maintenance or predictive maintenance is important. So, it makes clear how we decide whether we should maintain something or run it to failure. And it makes clear the business case for on condition maintenance, which is also known, and it's one of the things I wish I could change in our industry. Is we call on condition maintenance several things predictive maintenance, condition based maintenance, condition monitoring. They're, they're all pretty much the same thing. So, understand that. Uh, as companies look to introduce on condition maintenance tasks, they're almost always introduced to the PF curve, which helps illustrate the benefits of detecting these potential failures in effort to improve reliability and reduce costs for planning and scheduling. So while the PF curve does an effective job of making this point, it only illustrates a portion of what an organization can do to achieve and sustain reliability throughout the life cycle of your equipment. And the reason I talk about this is for years, there were many, many presentations that said, focus on point P. Focus your maintenance strategy on point P. And I kept looking at people and saying point P is too late. Point P is the failure has already occurred. Now we've just detected it. So what can we do to actually eliminate failures or prevent failures to begin with, along with display the importance of having a good condition monitoring program or on condition maintenance program. So and from that came this what I call the asset reliability curve or the asset lifecycle curve which starts with uh, design so you can see it still has the same x and y axis that Nolan and Heap had in terms of resistance to failure and time it just shows a longer period of time and again this is conceptual it starts with design looks at the proactive domain installation, the point P or potential failures, that corrective domain, and then the reactive domain. So the visual look at the different phases of this asset from the time it's designed to the time it fails to perform its intended function. So that's why I put it there is to say, let's look at the entire asset life cycle and then think about how you should perform maintenance. So the intent of this DIPF interval is to illustrate where reliability tools and techniques are needed to be applied to have the most impact of reliability. So point P is design. That's where the team is selected to procure capital and design the asset to a desired level of reliability. And In my illustration, you see that line go up, and it levels off to say this is where it should be. I always tell people, geez, if I'm the person that's charged with designing this, I actually want to design that capability above where we expect to run. Because I know that at some point in time, As soon as we meet expectations, somebody's going to say, let's increase those expectations. So point I is where equipment is installed and put into service. Point P, once again, is potential failure. And point F is functional failure. So again, there's looking at this. And what I was discussing was saying, geez, if I'm charged with this design, I want to design it up maybe to this level of expectation, knowing that, at some point in time, if we run really well at this level, some manager is going to say, let's let's increase the expectation or output of this system. So if a design above that, then we're, we've thought in advance to say, that's going to change. So looking at each of these domains, the point D is where uh, the inherent design reliability of your system is determined. And that's important to understand. If we need a reliable asset, that begins with design. So we designed to achieve or exceed specific performance standards. It's important to understand that once your asset has been installed, all the maintenance in the world won't improve the reliability of a bad design. So if we do a great job in design, all right, we still have some things that need to be met to get that equipment to run it, what we designed it to do, and I'll talk about those coming up. So tools for uh, improving reliability in the design phase. We have uh, FMEA, most people are familiar with failure modes and effects analysis. We can do RCM. Uh, We can look at developing design standards in terms of let's look at our um, rotating assets, for example, and say how much, uh, in terms of rotating assets, how much foundation in terms of mass needs to uh, be poured to support a good rotating asset. Requirements documents, so when I, if I buy a brand new gearbox from a company and we have this design that's put together, I want them to sign off that when it's installed, this is the level of vibration we expect it to run at, this is the temperature it should be running at, and so on. Uh, select supplier agreements. This is one of those that lots of companies, um, they lose sight of this in their purchasing organizations, we say, okay, rather than go out and bid every single type of component on this project to three or four different companies. And doing that in the past, that's how we've ended up with 10 and 12 different brands of motors in our stock rooms. uh, 15 different brands of centrifugal pumps and nine different brands of starters and eight brands of VFDs and so on. Start looking at the components that actually are giving you good reliability and look to make supplier agreements with the manufacturers of those components. Uh, Again, we can look at do reliability block diagrams at the beginning of the design phase to determine what level of reliability we should be able to achieve. And of course, putting in place during the design phase, this is extremely important and it often gets put off until afterwards. Maintenance and reliability foundational elements. So, we need to have that equipment hierarchy built, criticality analysis performed, and a bill of materials. And from that, we can do those other tools like RCM and develop a good maintenance strategy. So, when this equipment hits the ground running, we have a maintenance strategy in place that's going to ensure that IP interval. So, the time from the time of installation to the time of the first potential failure. And that's where the money truly is in terms of saving costs and manufacturing more, right? That's that proactive domain I talk about here in the yellow. So moving on to that proactive domain, point I is installation. And this is where the reliability of your design is either insured or destroyed. And this is one of those, I see this over and over again with my customers. They'll, they'll go out and they'll put together a good design and then they'll bid out, the installation to a contractor and they have no idea who's coming in to install this equipment. Whether they understand precision maintenance techniques, uh, so can they do laser alignment or reverse dial indication alignment, do they understand proper support, Uh, you name it, anything that when it comes to installing, we can either do the job right or do the job wrong. And if we do the job wrong, you are going to live with that for the remainder of that asset life cycle. So your IP interval is gonna be drastically shortened if it's not done right to begin with. So the proactive domain includes PM, on condition task and failure finding task. It's in this domain where we recognize the return on investment for the precision work we did at the time of installation and for completing our proactive maintenance task is scheduled. Focus on point I and the IP interval. That's where the most important phase of the asset life cycle is doing things right in this particular phase of the game. So we have another poll.
0: We do. And crazily enough, it's right on topic for what you were just discussing. So this time I wanna clarify that you can choose as many of these as apply to you. So the question being, what tools do you currently use to improve maintenance practices? I'm gonna turn the poll on, and you can choose as many as are relevant to you. Do
1: you have that Jeopardy music to play?
0: Hmm. I think people are thinking about this one. Doug, could you go through the definitions for the four items or at least the three acronyms?
1: Yes, uh, FMEA is failure modes and effects uh, analysis. That's a, a tool typically used in the design phase of uh, uh, equipment. RCM is reliability center maintenance. Uh, that's a tool we can use in the design phase or uh, at any time in the asset life cycle to develop a maintenance strategy. Root cause analysis uh, is for uh, getting together and discussing and determining the causes of different failures that have occurred at your site. And TPM is total productive maintenance. Uh, it's a tool that was developed to help operations uh, work with maintenance to uh, improve reliability and equipment
0: performance. Okay. I am going to close the poll and I'm going to share it. And now we can see that people, about 30% of us feel like we're doing FMEA and about 29% of us are in RCM camp. 75% are in cause analysis and 30% are in TPM. Well done everyone. And back to you, Doug.
1: Okay, so tools for improving that IP interval. So these are things that we can um, do uh, around improving our installation practices. So we can do RCM. It can be done anytime. It can be done during the design phase or afterwards. Precision alignment and balancing. Uh, Having torque specifications and using uh, torque wrenches to install Pipes, uh, looking glasses, you name it, uh, even electrical panels that torque for those. Installation standards and job plans. So installation standards gets into, all right, if we install a pump uh, in terms of suction and discharge, how much straight pipe should be there before we have any restriction in terms of valves or fittings? uh, Where should the first hangers be located? How far should our hangers be apart? Those types of things. Um, use the use of predictive tools at commissioning, vibration analysis, for example, before we turn the equipment over to operations, we should be uh, doing a uh, getting a baseline vibration to make sure that the uh, equipment has been properly aligned and balanced. Uh, use of precision tools, and this is one that sometimes confuses people because I ask them what are precision tools, and they start talking about verniers and calipers and torque wrenches and you name it and those things all are precision tools but I tell people precision tools sometimes are just the right tool for the job let's not use uh, a pipe wrench where I should be using an inch and a quarter uh, ratchet and socket and an inch and an eighth combination wrench to take a three quarter inch bolt apart right if we use the right tools then the next person can do the job effectively when it comes to disassembling and reassembling if we don't use the right tools you mess up the not in the bolt and you can't get the proper tools on. So QA and QC inspections at installation, this is really, you know, if I look at this list, probably one of the most important things and things that we continuously fall down on. If we have a new project and we've got some contractors out there doing an installation, you should have a couple of your maintenance people, electrical instrument, mechanical, going behind these people and making sure they're doing an, an adequate job of installing these assets for us. that the work that's being done is quality work so that we get that nice long IP interval I talked about. So looking at the proactive domain, our maintenance strategies, on condition, uh, maintenance failure finding tasks, and PM. Uh, These things should be identified and performed at their specified intervals. And we should not sacrifice on those. Uh, That's one of the things I'm talking about and trying to get the point across in terms of the industrial Internet of Things and smart uh, machines and reliability-centered machine learning, all these new articles and things that are coming out, it still comes down to we have to have managers that are smart enough to say that the intervals that we recommend we do these things are important and we cannot sacrifice those. That's what makes this work. All our tasks that we decide on should be, meet the criteria for applicable and effective that comes out of RCM. Don't let those schedules slide and understand the importance of criticality in planning and scheduling maintenance. So moving on into these corrective domain, and again this is also known as the PF interval, there's tools and, and strategies we can do there. root cause analysis again once we identify point p the first question that should be asked is what caused it that's a great thing for root cause analysis what caused your point p to come in plan and schedule that corrective maintenance as soon as point p is detected right we can use our pdm tools to monitor fault progression i can tell you i am not big on that i've seen companies do it and some companies that are, are reasonably, do it reasonably well. And what I mean by that is they're not doing it to enhance their run to failure strategy. And what I mean by that is, well, they'll start doing more condition monitoring to say how much more life can I get out of it? The reason we do condition monitoring is to detect point P, plan, schedule, and replace before we have secondary damage, right? If you continue to just monitor things, the secondary damage is starting to go on. Right. So what's the point of doing your, this if you're just going to continue to delay, 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 delay while you're damaging the equipment? The downtime is going to do nothing but increase and the cost is going to increase. So let's get disciplined and say when we detect point P, we're going to plan, schedule and at first opportunity, replace that item. Right. On top of that, we have our consequence reduction uh, techniques and strategies we can use in terms of stocking of and spares and, and so on. In terms of the corrective domain, understand that collateral damage. Efforts in this domain should drive two behaviors determine the cause of the failure and look to mitigate or eliminate, and then address the failure and minimize the collateral damage or the secondary damage. Moving on into the reactive domain, and that's where lots of us live. you don't have many choices here. Uh, you can either shut the equipment down or run to failure. And either way, you're going to open your checkbook. Uh, lastly, you're going to cross your fingers and you hope that it doesn't happen again. Realistically, we lean, need to learn from our mistakes. Let's use the tools available, the RCM, the root cause analysis, the FMEA to dis- discuss and determine why we have the failure modes that we see. Right. And what can we do to mitigate those things? So, if we focus our efforts here on this last portion of this curve, of this asset life cycle curve, uh, your maintenance costs are going to continue to rise. Your assets won't be reliable, so you're going to miss making orders. Right? You're not going to have the ability to plan, to manufacture, and deliver, and customer orders are going to be impacted. So we all have a choice and I tell people you can live out here at the end and most companies that I work with do and it's the most expensive place to manufacture and to perform maintenance or we can do the task up front and I have a few of those customers that have learned that Uh, I'm working with one right now and I'm just delighted with the fact that here they are at a point where they're just beginning to start their equipment to uh, make this particular product that uh, they designed this equipment for, and we're building a maintenance strategy. They've done their foundational elements. They have the uh, hierarchy in place. They've done a criticality analysis. And now we're putting in place a maintenance strategy that's going to go long, and it meets all those things so that when it comes time to uh, making product and planning to meet deliveries, they also recognize the fact that they need to plan to do their PMs and their on-condition maintenance. So I have a high expectation of what's going to come out from this project. All right. So at this point, that completes the presentation. We can do a question and answer period.
0: We certainly can. Thank you so much, Doug. Uh, we're going to start with the questions that have already been entered. And then if as you guys have more questions, please just keep popping them into the tool, and we'll get through them. So Alan Wood. I uh, asked a question back about QA and QC, Doug. And yeah. he started by asking, uh, how does Doug recommend that we ensure that we have qualified inspectors? And then he says, uh, the question is rel- relevant because they had a new facility and um, they, had a, they discovered a section of pipe that was insulated but wasn't coated. Um, and that led them to question the quality of their QA and their QC. So the so it goes back to how do we ensure that we have qualified inspectors.
1: All right your qualified inspectors should come right from your own skilled tradespeople. That's my hope anyway mm. right. and, and by interviewing those folks you should be able to uh, select people that you'd want to work on on, on different projects. Now under, with the understanding that may change depending on your plant size and the type of equipment you're installing because some tradespeople will be experts on some types of, of equipment, and you might have others that are have more experience on on different types. So, to me, it would be interview your tradespeople and and let them select the people.
0: All right. All right. And if that doesn't cover the full answer, just let me know in here. I'm going to back up uh, a little bit. Um, Tony asked whether Fluke has the ability to participate in IoT as a collection and a transmitter. Um, and I don't think that's going to be Doug's territory to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I can clarify a little bit, um, and then Doug can tell me um, if he thinks I'm, I'm wording it appropriately. But uh, so Fluke does have uh, cloud based data tools. In other words, Many of their tools will collect reliability data, both streaming and handheld, and you can upload that data. You can then track it in management. You can set alarms and so forth. It is not fully predictive at this point. But yes, they do collect and transmit and manage data using the IoT. Uh, Then going on down. some folks had questions about reliability block diagrams, but I think you went over that. I think you went over that pretty well. I think we're good there. A uh, question for you, Doug, um, whether you help manufacturers implement uh, CMMS systems, including Fluke's eMate software.
1: Um, I have seen Fluke's eMate software. I have given advice to companies on that in terms of how they should build that, what their hierarchy should look like, Uh, what a good criticality analysis looks like. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in terms of uh, I give advice and consult on that Um, Mm -hmm. in terms of do I help them install it? No.
0: Right. Any good CMS provider should be out there helping Uh, a new site come on board, it should be part of the package. And then someone like yourself is highly valuable for determining asset priority and the rest of the the fundamentals that (laughs) you (laughs) go hand in hand with it, right? Yep. Yep. All right, going down to the next question from Karen. She asks um, for contractual language to specify the design and commissioning for CIP and high dollar replacements.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's where your corporate attorneys come in. Yeah, I can tell you, I'm I'm not that. Uh, uh-huh. I, I looked at several of those types of things, and and I know way back in my Kodak day, we did have requirements documents for vibration, temperature, noise on all of our rotating assets, and I know our corporate attorneys helped in terms of those contracts to make those clear. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you. Uh, uh, and I won't mention a name of a company, but one company that made mixers just had fits because it came down to that they couldn't pass and we said, it's on your back, right? You mm-hmm. either fix them and make them right or we'll pull them out and we'll go with somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. And it took them a few months, but they finally did come up with the solution to to meet the criteria that, that we put in. And as a result, those things ran for years and years and years and years and years before we saw point B, right? I think that was a pretty good answer. And you're not a liar.
0: I mean, as far as I know, so well done. (laughs) Karen also asks if you have a list of items for baseline testing when you're commissioning a new motor.
1: Um, do I know what the baseline should be? No, I don't. Um, do I know people that, that could probably give you that information? Yes, I do.
0: I think it sounds more like a checklist. Like, is there a standard procedure?
1: Yeah. You know, in terms of standard procedures on a, on a motor, you're going to want a vibration analysis. You're going to want to do uh, um, MCA on that motor, mm-hmm. right? And get a baseline temperature on it when it starts up and has been running for say an hour. Right? Yep. 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 Yep.
0: All right. Here's a good one, Doug. The... Listener asks, I believe that machine learning and artificial intelligence will change everything we know about RCM uh, as it becomes more accurate and efficient. What is your view on that?
1: Um, I think it will help in terms of um, general or what I call engineered failure modes. Uh, I think it's going to struggle just like other uh, tools that we have, because this is a, a discussion we were actually having before the the presentation started, is there's nothing really new in terms of (laughs) industrial internet things and smart machines. We just have faster computers that are capable of crunching more data. The Mm -hmm. instruments that we have today in terms of wireless and online vibration analysis and IR and, and ultrasound and pressure, temperature, flow, timing, all those things have been available for years and years and years. What we have now is just the ability to do more number crunching, right? So while I could have a smart machine that says, okay, I've got all these electronic parts as well, and so I'm gonna start creating, uh, based on reliability statistics, intervals of when you should change an I.O. card, right? I'm gonna turn around and say to you, how do you know why the I.O. card card Uh failed?" right? Uh And if I change it today, was it improperly installed Or was it a temperature issue? Until that smart machine learns those things. Right. right? Right. We're we're still going to have some foggy areas and a lot more information to digest. So who's going to digest that information that gets spit out? All right. In the same sense, while we have all these tools, vibration analysis, thermography, and you name it, online, they're no different than we've had in the past. For somebody's still going to have to tell the smart machine, it's time to shut down.
0: Mm hmm.
1: So is the machine going to do it itself or is it still going to be a manager that says I need to make product?
0: Yep. Right. So no, no replacing experience and an engineer. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. So nothing replaces that. Will it change our <laughs> I think it will a little bit. I think there'll be more yeah. people that want to lean towards uh, failure mode libraries. And I've done articles on why some of those things work and why some of them don't. Mm-hmm. You know, a new process of failure mode library is not a bad place to begin, right? A process that's five or ten years old where you've got experience, you go, you're going to find the things that are really causing you your problems weren't in that failure mode library. <laughs> They're how we operate, the environment that we live yes. in, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And, and, and to work in the experience of our people has a huge impact on that. What are those failure modes? Yep. Does a smart machine tell me how experienced my people are? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that I'm aware of. So are those things good? Yes, they are. I'm excited to see what that brings, right? Uh, Realistically, not much has changed other than the fact that we've got more data to process. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: So I have a further question from Karen. She is the one who asked about the baseline testing uh, um, standard practices for commissioning a new motor. And then she asks further for enhanced pump and motor add-ons for
1: wastewater. Uh, In terms of that, that becomes a little industry specific, Mm -hmm. right? What are your flow rates coming in? What are your flow rates going out? What's the differential pressure across there? So where do you sit in that pump curve for that particular pump? mm-hmm okay so again i'm going to recommend in in that that you would have some type of uh vibration analysis on the startup and then again where based on the calculations you did beforehand mm-hmm. right is mm-hmm. that pump operating in the curve we where we expected it to based on what was an expected flow or what's the expected output
0: mm-hmm okay and the fellow who had the QA question came back and said, yep, we used a third party, apparently the wrong third party. And uh, then he asked a different question. He said that uh, you spoke Doug about a baseline on installation, baseline vibration data. If we did not do that, he asks, I assume it is okay to begin a baseline after the equipment has been in service.
1: Well, you're going to, you're going to get some kind of reading, but it's, it's certainly not going to be your baseline, right? I mean, if it, if you're lucky, it's going to be close it's going to show you there's no misalignment there's no imbalance uh, and they did a good job of installing it if they didn't you weren't going to know what your baseline truly is it's but just you a- may as yeah. well
0: get started right
1: like if yeah. you didn't there's no yeah you've got to start sometime yeah so should you start yes you should okay
0: All right. Dave asks, do you have any tips to get buy-in from plant leadership uh, who may think that reactive maintenance is the norm in
1: industry? (laughs) Um, I knew you chuckle. I I don't mean to laugh, but uh, I've been there so many times. And this is Mm -hmm. where, you know, in the courses that I teach, I I try to tell maintenance people, we need to become business people. We need to talk Mm -hmm. about the money. Money is where this is at right? What's what's reactive maintenance costing us? And use real numbers, right? Because there's a lot of fudge numbers out there that say, oh, reactive maintenance is three to five times more expensive than, than doing unconditioned maintenance and planning and scheduling. right? The numbers I see are actually higher than that, right? So use actual numbers, say, all right, here's, here's a pump where we actually did that. We said, we're going to do vibration analysis on it. We're going to detect when it's about to fail and we're going to, or it's in the progression of failure. We're gonna go out, we're gonna pull it, we're gonna rebuild it, and this is what the rebuild cost. And here's one where we said, oh, we don't have time to do that. We don't have time, we need to do this, we need to pump, we need to go. What's the cost of repairing that pump? Or was it, were you actually able to repair it? Did you have to buy a new one, right? Um, add in there, what's the cost of downtime, right? We often look at our operations people and and, and tell them you've got a decision to make. And they say, well, I can't shut it down because I've got product to make. Right. And I realize that that product sells for, and that's how we make money is by making product. Right. So when we can't make it, what's the cost of that? And when we're down and we're doing reactive maintenance, the time to do that takes longer than it does to do plan and schedule. Yep. So let's build that business case that says this is what it's worth to do maintenance the right way. We need to start talking business. And that comes right down to our tradespeople. To get people's attention, money is what does it. That's the only uh, thing that changes the behavior is to point out the money you are wasting.
0: All righty. Adam wants to know if there are any particular software tools that you suggest for RCM, TPM, et cetera.
1: Well, I happen to have an RCM tool that's very good. Um, TPM, I'm not aware of one at this point in time. Um, So right now in the past three months, I have been restarting my business, rebuilding a software package for RCM. And my plans are down the road is to say i'm going to have an fmea tool i'm going to have a root cause tool uh, i'm going to have a, a tool for uh criticality analysis and so on so i have those things to work on is there one package out there right now that i can think of off the top of my head no there's not
0: fair enough alexander would like to know what are the most important measurements to monitor on equipment such as air compressors and how often
1: In terms of air compressors, uh, number one would be uh, your dew point. And I'm a person that says if you can monitor dew point, continuously do that. So then you would look at differential pressure across your inlet filter, uh, inlet pressure, uh, discharge pressure, differential across your compressor, um, flow. And again, the mo- probably the most important one is dew point. Right. Uh, monitor pressure, temperature, or excuse me, the temperature of the compressor as well, and as well as the uh, coolant that you're using, whether uh, in most cases it's oil. So you'll have your own oil system. Keep an eye on that as, as well, in terms of continuous monitoring. Compressed air systems, by the way, I've done more RCM on compressed air systems than any other asset out there. Um, if they're not maintained properly, they have an, the air will have an impact on the reliability of every single one of your assets. Because if you have dirty, wet air, it ruins your instruments.
0: That was an amazingly thorough answer. You. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you, we're going to keep answering questions, but I'm going to th- suggest that you advance your slides by one, Doug, so that people can see your contact information so they can write it down if they want to now instead of waiting, there we go. And then I'm gonna go on to the next question uh, by Ahmed. What are some effective predictive maintenance procedures that you can recommend to improve reliability of equipment?
1: Could you ask that again? I
0: can. What are some effective predictive maintenance procedures that you recommend to improve reliability of equipment?
1: Okay. So. The the top four are in terms of, and this is confusing for predictive maintenance procedures, so it's really predictive maintenance tools, So we have vibration analysis, thermography, uh, airborne ultrasound, and motor current analysis, and I'll give you lubrication analysis. Those are the the five that everybody should be using. You can add an easy one to that number six, which is what, what I call process verification. That's the use of your PLC to monitor an alarm and trend along with comparative trends, pressure, temperature, flow, amp draw, timing, right? That PLC is there 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and it gives you information, right? Um, I would encourage you to separate maintenance alarms from operations alarms so that your operators aren't pestered by all those things that come in that we should be having maintenance take a look at. For example, differential pressure, right? Um, And having a maintenance alarm package spit out each morning at 6 a.m. that says, here's the maintenance alarms that came in across our different assets and assign those to the correct task, whether it's a mechanic, an instrument person, electrician, go out, take a look at these, see what's going on.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. And you've got a big fan club here, by the way. People are, are greatly appreciative of your of your presentation. Uh, lots of thank yous coming in. Um a fellow named Gregory who would like to know whether you agree that the overall category of work in the PF interval is corrective, and how do we classify inspection-only tasks? Do we go with fault finding as an explanation?
1: Um in terms of the pf and, and corrective uh that is a, a an accurate assumption the work that comes out of there is corrected based on we've detected a potential failure and what do we got to do to correct it to get back to uh the level of uh resistance to failure that we would expect in terms of monitoring and, and inspection this is one of those cloudy areas in terms of the field of reliability stan nolan and howard Heap called uh for example, crack monitoring on uh, aircraft fuselage uh, on condition maintenance. And there's another school of people that says on condition means the equipment is on and running. Uh, I'm, I'm a person that says, I don't care what you call it. Put it in your maintenance plan and do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whether you call it a PM or a PDM task. I'm, I'm not one of those people that gets really excited about which category is it in. It's the right thing to do. Go out and do it. Right. Failure yep. finding and I heard that term used, and I want to make sure that's clarified. Failure finding or fault finding comes into detecting or a task that's performed to detect a piece of equipment or asset that's already failed but not recognizable by the operating crew. So the equipment will run perfectly with an item in a failed state. An e stop, for example. The equipment will run perfectly with the e stop failed in a state that if you push it, nothing happens. So, yep. failure failure test should be put in place to detect those types of things.
0: Okay. I'm going to move on down to some people that we haven't aired yet, and then I'll circle back around to folks who uh, have submitted additional questions. You have a listener named Anna who, I think because of your earlier success, your great answers, has asked about commissioning baselines for elevator modernization and for air compressors. I think you gave a pretty thorough air compressor answer, but how about elevator modernization?
1: Elevator modernization. Okay. <laughs> Come on. Um, yeah. That, that's a bit outside my field. I've done some RCM's on, on old elevators. Um, and so to say that I have something that off the top of my head for, for new, uh, Gosh, there, there's so much change that's done to them now in, in terms of how they operate, in terms of using VFDs and, and those types of things that um, I, I can't give a good suggestion with that one and have a good heart behind it. Right? It's pretty specialized. Yeah. Bill asks,
0: are there any tools available to help us complete this type of analysis on existing equipment? And to determine the remaining useful life of existing existing equipment.
1: Yeah, deter- there's lots of tools. RCM is a great tool. FMEA is a great tool. And determining useful life that that's a tough one, right? And I've told people for years, old doesn't mean bad, right? Unless of course we're talking about obsolete, right? Because now you're playing with father time, so to speak, right? and making a determination of how long something is going to be last that's uh possible for wear-based components where we can measure uh surface loss and things like that when it comes to electronics that area becomes really really great and again there's reliability statistics that would help you with that uh Off the top of my head, I'm I'm, I'm reaching for, I'm trying to go back 20 years to to my reliability statistics courses and saying, uh, there's a a probability of survival calculation that you can do on random based components that would give you a a pretty good idea, right? Would I gamble my own money on that? No, right? Because again, you have competing risks of, if we're talking about an electronic component, all right, how many enemies of electricity are present? The calculation doesn't ever think about that. It doesn't think about, is it in a moisture area? Is it a corrosive area? Is it uh, in an area where uh, we have electrical outages, so we might see power surges? Uh, and that's why I say, when I, if it came to putting my own money on it, I, I wouldn't bet my own money on that calculation. But realistically, those calculations were proven, um, between the airline industry and the aerospace industry, especially NASA did a lot of that um, through the Rome. uh, They call it the RAC Reliability Analysis Center in Rome, New York. Uh, You might wanna search that. There is some pretty good information in a book called Reliability Tools that came out of the RAC. uh, And I've used that uh, information quite a bit through the years. Uh,
0: (laughs) Amazing.
1: If I find my copy, I'll post a picture of it up on LinkedIn today. I'm pretty sure I know where my copy is so people can look at it, see if that book is still available.
0: We have time for a couple more questions. I want to remind people that when I close this down, you'll get a survey on screen. And if you use that survey to indicate if you want a copy of the slides, we'll send one to you. So wait for the survey, fill it out. We'll get a copy of the slides to you, and that the full recorded session with all of Doug's magical answers here is going to be up online on ExcelX.com not too long from now. So if there's parts you want to re-listen to, you'll be able to. I'm going to go right back to questions. We have one from Joseph, and he asks, if there, ah, is there any equipment or assets that you do recommend Reactive as a maintenance strategy?
1: Um. Yeah, as part of RCM, you're gonna learn that, that run to failure is actually a major strategy for a lot of low voltage uh, mm-hmm. components. Uh, proximity switches, IO cards, um, read switches, there's not much you can do to those. I mean, it's make sure you got them in stock and make sure you uh, use good robust brackets when you install them which make them easier to replace and make them last longer.
0: Joseph also asked whether excess lubrication has any effect in an open system, like a pump where the excess is vented.
1: Excess lubrication? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, It it can be just as bad as not lubricating it. So.
0: Mm -hmm. Pretty much.
1: Generally, I mean, it's it's a, just another point to bring contaminants in, right? Um, and you can overpressurize a bearing, for example, by over-lubricating it. You blow the seals, and then the next thing, once the seals have gone, you've got an entryway for contamination, and you've ruined the life of that bearing.
0: hmm right? mm-hmm. Richard has a question that I'm not sure it's in your, if it's in your, your bailiwick or not, but he asks, should you service vehicles before the vehicle computer says it's due? Is that helpful or more wasteful?
1: On a vehicle? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've had lots of fun conversations with my fellow <laughs> reliability engineers at conferences about this and we all vary from one extreme to the other, which some say everything in the manual is a bunch of who to the other that, that said, uh, yeah, I'm doing my oil strictly 3,000 miles. Somebody else at 5,000. miles. Look, it depends on what lubricant you're using, right? And I tell people, I'm almost embarrassed to say this. I think it was just two years ago that I went and got my M.L.T. certification, level one, right? And I learned so much that I didn't know about lubricants. And and we in those classes discussed the intervals that are recommended by uh the auto manufacturers right and they're typically it's it's a cya interval that says based on everything we know where people drive cars hot areas cold areas dirty areas dirt roads smooth roads right if you're in all those worst case things here's how often you ought to change your oil right uh what nobody's done right i have one friend that the claim they did but we never did see the results we're still waiting today to say I actually took analysis of my oil over the life of one vehicle right and now I do it based on uh, that particular interval right and he was a person that standard weight oil said he was he was going 4500 miles right and that's now his new interval so I'm a person that says all right so what do you do in the spring and the fall? if you haven't done 45 miles, hundred miles, because now your humidity changes and you're going to get a little bit of, uh, water in your, in your oil.
0: Sounds to me like a radio
1: show, Doug. <laughs> you're doing great here. So it is so, on the hour.
0: I feel like asking you one more question, but if you need to go, I understand and we'll close it down. What do you think?
1: Uh, one more question and we'll close it down.
0: All right. What is your view of prescriptive maintenance?
1: My view of prescriptive maintenance is the maintenance strategy that comes out of using a tool like RCM. It's prescriptive based on known failure modes, right? So Mm -hmm. here's my asset. It's made up of these 85 components. And in assessing the failure modes of those components, we had some failure-finding tasks. We had some on condition tasks. We had some PM tasks. And we have some things that we've decided to run to failure. That's prescriptive maintenance.
0: Boom, thank you. All right, everyone, I'm going to close the webinar. You should receive the survey, and uh, you are welcome to contact Doug directly. You have his information up on screen. Thank you very much for joining us. We will, any anybody whose question we didn't get to, we will provide answers to you directly. Um, and uh, there will also be a follow-up blog posted on excelix.com with some of the the most frequent questions and some of Doug's answers. All right. So thank you, Doug, very, very much. This was fantastic. Have a great afternoon, everyone.